0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. On News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for downloading, subscribing and rating. I uh, really appreciate all of your support this year and into the future. Um, coming up on this week's programme, um, I had a co-presenter, her name was Claire, um, and I-, I did a radio show with her for like eight years. And everywhere she went, she had like a big bottle of water and she would just pop up random places in, in the office asking me, had I drunk enough water? She was very concerned about my level of hydration. And I think like she is the sort of woman that the Stanley uh, drink cup is in, was invented for, like this giant, because she was constantly drinking water. But it turns out you can drink too much water, right? Uh, and actually the color of your urine uh, can actually tell people how healthy you are. And I would imagine Claire's urine is probably just super, super clear. (laughs) I have my producer, uh, Aidan McKelvey, who's back from a year of travelling around the world. He's back and jaded and um, actually he's not, he's weirdly delighted to be home. He's always happy, this guy. Uh, he's shaking his head. Uh, sorry about that, Claire. But, but what, what I'm, <laughs> my point was that, uh, that you're constantly told to drink, but actually there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of colour to your wee and you can tell how healthy you are and how hydrated you are just by the colour. Um, And also, we can have other colours. These are all fascinating things I learned um, in our interview this week, which you're going to hear in a few minutes' time. Uh, But first, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. You can uh, also find us on Twitter, we're at Talk Science. Uh, We get to all of your comments at the end of the podcast. A quick thank you to Phil Smith, who stood in for me last week, because I was dying of this six-day cold flu thing that people may have or have not had over the last couple of weeks. Awful, awful feeling it was. Um, but back to 100%, if not 110% myself this week, which is great. Uh, and we start off, as always, by looking back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Oren Kennedy from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, and Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from icrag You're both very welcome. Our first story, Fergus, has to do with... A, an ill-fated moon mission.
0: Yes, exactly. And when I came across this story this week, it almost felt that this um, particular space mission was doomed kind of from the outset. So it's the Peregrine Lunar Lander and it's designed by a US-based lunar logistics company called Astrobotic, right? And it blasted off earlier this week, setting sail for the moon, essentially. But even before it blasted off, this particular mission was actually crowded in controversy because um it was going to carry a lot of different payloads some of which were from nasa but also some of which contained the uh, human dna essentially from um george washington john f kennedy and dwight eisenhower what yes uh, and alongside that uh, so, i'm sorry where did they even get the dna of george washington i don't i don't i don't know where they got the dna um of of ex presidents essentially but um also the ashes of gene roddenberry who's the creator of star trek and believe it or not um a physical bitcoin they were the, what? these were these were all loaded <laughs> on this particular peregrine
1: lander so it was so it's like sort of one of those um what do they call them like a uh, A time Time capsule. capsule. A kind Uh, of a time capsule. and That they were going to land on the moon for some stupid reason. Yeah, a kind of time,
0: but also like like a little bit of a trophy as well, you know, to certain people that are motivated by that. So essentially for the last number of months, a lot of different organisations and uh, religious leaders had come out saying, what is this mission all about? Because the moon for many, um, in particular, indigenous peoples has a huge spiritual significance. And why are we just kind of landing this stuff on the moon for the sake of, I guess, showing a privileged We are, if that makes sense. Now, NASA came out and distanced themselves, saying that they're only in control of the scientific aspect of the payload, not the non-scientific part. Mm. The company behind the venture said that we have never let religion ever play a part in any of our space mission efforts (coughs) so far. So why should we start now? Um, So even before this blasted off, there was controversy. Then it blasted off
1: on Monday. And after seven hours... Just to say, like, listening to religious groups... Uh, and saying well for religious reasons reasons we should do this or should do that in terms of space exploration that makes no sense to me whatsoever however just throwing trash at the moon particularly just sort of weird obscure Americana like, exactly. you know, like the, <laughs> the the severed finger of Abraham Lincoln like none of this makes any sense to me
0: No and so uh, the severed finger of Abraham Lincoln um, so seven hours into the journey it essentially um, on Monday it was unable to, to reorient its solar panels to point at the sun so that was after seven hours as in by Monday evening the company announced that there was a few leak um on the lander itself Um, so it was causing the thrusters to be able to um, or it was starting to malfunction and then on Monday evening they announced that it only had a few hours left essentially before the mission failed now they were going to try to get as close to the moon as they could (laughs) to learn as much as they can for the next attempt at this but they're not going to get there and in a way there's kind of a nice sort of ending to this because you know in the quest for the privileged few to put human remains on the moon it appears in
1: this case that the gods have won. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like um, they've been cursed by the Native Americans who um, who were complaining about this. Uh, let's um, try and think, if we were doing an Irish version of this and we wanted to put it into sort of arcane but slightly Irish stuff, what would we put in? You can text us 53106 for 30 cent. Um, Oren, our second story has to do with an
2: early stage cancer detector. Yes, so this is a really interesting story, but it has a a few caveats, I would say, to start with. It's a study about a fairly simple test that can detect a whole range of different cancer types by doing a blood test and then measuring certain types of protein in the blood. And the study was done by a company that sells testing kits that can be used to measure protein in blood samples so there's a certain caveat, I suppose, that goes along with that. It was, it was carried out by a research wing of a company that sells products to do this. And also, as a secondary point, anybody familiar with the story of Theranos and uh, Elizabeth Holmes and all that would probably have a healthy scepticism about anybody that says they have a blood test that can test a load of stuff
1: yeah.
2: at one go. But basically, but it is, I mean, it's always these enterprises, these efforts are always you know worthwhile to a certain extent. So... <clears throat> The situation here is in, it's for early detection of cancers. And this is, of course, crucial because, you know, the earlier you get them, the earlier yeah you can try to treat them. And uh, effective screening tests for many cancers have been used in the past. They're normally DNA based and liquid biopsies are used and all that. But they're never uh, very accurate, and so they're they're sort of hard to um, they're hard to use. And uh, this is slightly different; they're also very expensive. Here they're talking about measuring protein, so a slightly different test. And um, they use plasma, and it gives new opportunities for developing multi-cancer screening tests. So they use this test on 440 individuals, and they were. Um, they pubi- it, this is a published paper. Yeah, it is published, published and peer reviewed. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's published in BMJ Oncology, so it has been peer reviewed. But uh, and uh, as I'll get to it in the end. Like, I think in a lot of cases like this, it's always really important in stories like this, I think, to read the comments from the people who weren't involved in the study, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and especially, that's always true, I think, yes. and especially in a case like this, where it's a sort of a company-sponsored... Press release. Uh, uh, ...study and press release and there's vested interests involved with that. So, but anyway, even, so they have said, um, first of all, they said that they can detect cancers quite early and quite uh, with high sensitivity, you know, so that's that's a good thing. And um, th- there's quite a lot of claims here, you know, it could be used to do this and it could be used to do that. And, and listen, there's some questions, I think, over, over uh, how true all of that is. But most of those comments from people who weren't involved in the study say this is a good proof of concept. It's really about a different approach, measuring proteins in a blood sample mm-hmm. to detect a whole range of different cancers. Early on, and there's there's some uh, there's some promise in that. Your face but, uh, is just saying, uh, "I'm not super impressed by
1: this," uh, <laughs> and I would like to see more evidence.
2: You know, if it's a published paper, I, you know, I obviously wasn't involved in any of the pre- reviewing or anything like that. But uh, you know, you always have to, I think, accept if a paper is peer-reviewed and it's published, there's, there's some validity to it. But, you know, I think it's also good to uh, to have a healthy scepticism about all these things. That's part of what the review process is for.
1: OK, so it may or may not be the the next big thing, yeah, but yeah. Um, uh, time I will tell and more research required is uh, often what we find in those papers, right? Exactly, yeah. um, Our uh, third story, uh, Fergus, uh, has... Seeing us return to the moon, or actually seeing us not return to the moon a second time.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, and some of the headlines that have come out with this, about this story have been absolutely fantastic because it's talking about one giant step backwards as opposed to one small step for man forwards, essentially. So NASA has postponed its plans to send humans to the moon. And they announced that this week. And it's due to a variety of reasons, essentially. So so NASA have this master plan, right? This decades-long master plan to get humans to Mars. Yeah. The first part of that is to send humans back to the moon. And we haven't done that in over
1: 50 years. So... And it's and it, the reason for that is not because the moon is like halfway to Mars. <laughs> it's because uh, you need to figure out um, humans living in the space environment and and figure that out first before you transplant that to, to Mars, just in case anyone's wondering. Exactly, and
0: it's uh, uh, and also they are still like encountering issues with the spacecraft that they use and all, all that needs to be tested. So the program that is running this is is called Artemis. Yeah. Okay. And it's in it's in three stages. Artemis one has happened. Okay. So that happened in 2022, and, and it was it was essentially sending a spacecraft. Um, an unmanned spacecraft around the moon and bringing it back and landing it at sea. And that was successful. It's Artemis 2 and 3 that have been postponed into 25 and 26. Artemis 2 will be, that will be manned and it will do the same journey as Artemis 1 and then Artemis 3 is the big one. And that's where it's actually going to go to the moon and land astronauts on it. And one of the reasons that, that they've delayed things is that when they did that Artemis 1 landing, there was unexplained or sort of unpredicted erosion on the lander as it landed back into the ocean and right. they didn't know why that was there was also some some issues with the circuitry on the life support system but I guess overall of this is the fact that now NASA compared to the space race NASA is a much smaller organisation now and it's way less well resourced yeah. so it's actually teaming up with the private sector to build some of this infrastructure so When they're trying to actually get people to the moon in 2026, they need to be able to land them. The company that is building that lander is Elon Musk's SpaceX. Mm. That has had two test flights so far, both of them launched, but then both of them
1: blew up within a few seconds. Uh, So what did he call it? unscheduled rapid disassembly. <laughs> like exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. like, um, <laughs> that is one way to rebrand. Yeah, the word
0: smithery there was was really impressive. But it just goes to show that, you know, one of the reasons that NASA was so successful is that at its peak, it had 400,000 people working on, on the mission to the moon and it doesn't have that anymore. Yeah. So when you're trying to big, a big government organisation along with a lot of private sector companies in together, things are going to take longer mm. and
1: crew safety is absolutely paramount and that's why they've delayed things. I Look, I'm, I'm being total devil's advocate, right? But are we being too safe when it comes to space travel. And that sounds like a really but we put people in cars every day. There is a risk associated, right? We look at Challenger and Challenger was a horrible thing, but it really did have an enormous effect on putting people in space. And we are now really, 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 really careful about putting people in space, even though they are aware of the risks. We don't have the same sort of caution when it comes to lots of other uh, enterprises where we're looking to innovate. Uh, I wonder and actually if you're, you're listening I'd love to hear your thoughts and you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us we're at newstalkscience you know are we being overly cautious when it comes to putting humans in space you know these astronauts are trained for this they they go a lot of them go into test flights they put themselves in space and in danger all the time they understand that is part of the, the process are we, are we being a little bit too cautious I don't know I don't know um, you can let us know Uh, Oren, our final story has to do with our first growing heart valve transplant.
2: What is this? Yeah, this is a fantastic story. And it started uh, just over a year ago in 2022. And the first thing to say about this story is that it's so good that it was quickly incorporated into an episode of Grey's Anatomy uh, last year sometime because, you know, they like to... uh, Be on top of what's going on. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's really good. So it's basically about cardiac surgery on the heart of a newborn. But a different type of surgery, I suppose. Um, Owen Monroe was a little boy. who was born and he was 18 years old. He had a partial heart transplant. <laughs> and the difference or the reason he had it or he needed it is because he had a condition called truncus arteriosus. And what that is, is if you consider your heart to be basically two pumps that are joined together, one low pressure pump that sends blood to your lungs to get oxygen and then a high pressure pump that sends it off when, the muscles, when it's yeah. to the rest of your body uh so those two pumps need to be separated and sometimes congenitally they're not so the, there's a gap between the two um uh the two vessels that bring those two um types of blood around so it gets all mixed up and it it causes a problem so Uh, His heart was the size of a strawberry and if you can imagine the blood vessels that are coming out of the top supposed to be separated and they aren't so they basically removed the top of his heart where those two vessels start and replace it and uh, since then it has grown together with the heart so it's sort of fully incorporated into his body so it's it's really 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 cool stuff. Is this this artificial part of the heart, what is it made of? So it's a <clears throat> it's a donor heart. So this was donated. Okay. So it wasn't a. It's it, not an artificial it wasn't a, no, It's, it's uh, one of the it's soft, it things. graft. It's like a transplant slash graft. Right. Um, and, uh, and another part of this, by the way, is that because it's a partial heart transplant, they're calling it like a. It's a new sort of idea in in transplantation medicine in that one donor can serve two, it's called domino transplants. So they only use part of this donated heart. Mm. Somebody else can get the other part. Right. So one one uh, donor has helped two children in this case. It's amazing, it's really amazing. So um, Owen, oh, in this case, he used the, the top part of the heart where those va- valve, you know, the b- valves that stop the backflow of blood and all of that, are in there and they're working. That when they so, thump together, they make that thump noise when they close and open. That's what, exactly a heartbeat, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. And so it prevents back backflow of the blood and all of that. So they're working, they're growing, and the vessels that are carrying the blood are also working and growing. And it's why amazing. is it so? Why is this new? Because.
1: Like we've had heart transplants for quite some time. We've had heart valve problems for quite some time. Yeah, Why is this particularly of interest? Is it because typically the
2: scarring doesn't allow for growth or what is it? I think it's um, because it's it's partial. um, So you you have full heart transplants or you have uh, little bits of tissue that are created, or used to create a valve. Yeah. But this is, it's a partial, like it's like a... You know, it's a complex of vessels and uh, valves together that are being used. You know, so in that, in that, for that reason, it's like a component exactly. that's transplanted. Brilliant. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And it's also uh, so in in uh, comparison to a full heart transplant. Uh, full heart transplants are are done regularly. There's maybe two hundred fifty of them every year in the states. Uh, there's a, a fairly big component of immunorejection. Mm. and the reason for that I didn't know this until I read this article it's really interesting it's the muscle of the heart because it produces so much protein that's the main cause of immunorejection because there's so much uh, protein so, in the muscle so, so they took off the top part that's more valves and vessels which doesn't have as much it doesn't produce as much so immunorejection is much lower in this case it's really, really
1: wow good, yeah. okay really interesting yeah, very good yeah,
2: yeah. Um, Dr. Oren. Uh,
1: Kennedy from RCSI and Dr. Fergus mccullough from iCrack. Thanks very much. All right, on the way, the Pantone chart of your pee. While it is technically true that what you can eat can color your urine, most of us don't spend our days eating bananas, yellow M and M's, and sweet corn all day. And yet, you, for the most part will have yellow urine, as will I, day to day. At least that is if you're healthy. But why? Well, it's a question that has stumped some scientists until now. Uh, here to tell us uh, why is Brantley Hall. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Cell Biology and Molecular Genetics at the University of Maryland. Uh, hello, Brantley. How are you? Hello. Nice to be here today. I'm awesome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We've, you know, we've been doing this programme quite some time and we've never talked about urine Um, So it's a first, and I have plenty of questions. So can we
3: start off by asking um, what what urine is, please? Yeah, urine is the way that humans excrete a number of metabolic waste products. So for example, it's the way that we can excrete urea from protein metabolism, or uric acid from nucleic acid metabolism, or creatine from muscle metabolism. It also helps us to regulate the water and electrolyte balance of our bodies, and it helps us eliminate foreign substances like water, but also drugs and toxins. So yeah, that's what urine is. Uh, we're always here about how important
1: water is and the need to hydrate. Uh, like urine is obviously very wet. <laughs> why, why is that? Why don't we retain more of the water if water is so useful to us being 60%
3: water? I think we need to get rid of a lot of metabolic waste products. And these products are soluble in water. Right. So to get rid of them, we basically need to get rid of the water that carries... These, these the water that is these things are dissolved in so for example urea and uric acid are soluble and it's dissolved in the urine so it's a good way to get rid of it and um, the
1: the amount that we waste does that vary hugely per person or is there generally because I heard this thing that um every animal spends a, a a same amount of time urinating relative to their size like an elephant will spend you know that it's a that there's this, a ratio of size to um, to urine um period <laughs> <laughs>
3: I also saw that study. I, I'm not involved with that study at all, so I can't really comment scientifically on it. But I, I saw the same thing as you that urination takes about the same amount of time, whether it's a very large animal or it's a very small animal. But I don't, I don't know that much further about that specific topic.
1: Right. Um, so we typically talk about uh, you know the importance of hydration and having uh, you know sort of clearish urine. But actually, uh, as I mentioned in the in the intro, we can have quite a, a an array of colors for human urine. Can you take us through those, the sort of Pantone chart of P and explain um, why we might get some of those colors and and, and what they can tell us about our, our health?
3: Absolutely. So most people are going to have slightly yellow urine, and this is kind of like a pale yellow or a golden yellow. And that's from the molecule urobilin. And this is what our study is about, actually. We found how gut microbes turn this orange molecule bilirubin into this yellow molecule urobilin. It actually happens in your gut, and then it's reabsorbed filtered by the kidneys and peed out as urine. So if you see like a palish yellow urine, that's probably urobilin and that's healthy. But there's also a number of other phenomenon that can result in different urine colors. So for example, if your urine is neon yellow, like the color of a tennis ball, you probably are taking too many B-complex vitamins. Um, And so vitamin B2, specifically riboflavin, causes this neon yellow urine color. Um, I do want to say that I'm not a medical professional, so don't don't take this as medical advice. And if you do notice any of these strange urine colors, I suggest speaking with a medical professional. Indeed, uh, indeed. not me, but I, I can keep going. Um, no, please do. And, and uh, yeah. if you
1: if you're like me, listening along, uh, do a little mental check of the ones that you have had. I'm, just, I'm
3: ticking off the ones that I've experienced. So go on. So neon yellow is probably B vitamins. Sometimes urine can be red, and this can be because of drugs. Um, for example, a commonly prescribed drug for urinary tract infections turns your urine red, but also eating a bunch of beets or blackberries might turn your urine red as well. Um, orange urine can be a sign of uh, dehydration. Some drugs can cause it. Even bilirubin can cause orange urine. But a lot of times, even eating a bunch of carrots can make your urine orange. So like, that's kind of funny. You really? probably know if you ate so many carrots. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't realize that.
1: So obviously there, there, you know, there's obviously some pigment in these uh, plants and foods that um, Passes through the filtration process. If we eat so much of them that it just can't, it, it doesn't get cleared, and and it does color, change the color. Uh, there are um, there are other colors that that people can uh, pass, which are uh, perhaps surprising, like green and blue. But they're they're presumably much less common.
3: Yeah, um, the bluish red or purple urine might be a sign of porphyria, which is a rare metabolic disorder. So if you see like purplish or bluish urine, please do see a doctor because it might be a rare metabolic disease. Um. Green might also be biliverdin, which is a biopigment, which might indicate liver issues. And um, brown. Brown is actually really common because there's some commonly prescribed antibiotics, like flagell, which is metronidazole, which can cause brown urine. So, you know, sometimes your doctor probably knows that you took metronidazole and your urine is brown, but, you know, purple or green is definitely a sign to talk to a medical professional. Right.
1: And, and then cloudy, is, cloudy can be dangerous as well, right? Cloudy is often... Um... As, as, as a sign that there's some sort of infection.
3: It is, yeah. That That's pretty
1: worrisome. Okay. Um, moving on to your research, uh, I was really surprised to hear that 60 to 80% of all babies exhibit neonatal jaundice. And I think people uh, who've had, who've been in a uh, labour ward have seen um, uh, sort of yellowish looking babies. What exactly is neonatal jaundice? Is it something to worry about? And why is it so common?
3: Exactly. Yeah. A great question. So yeah, a lot of babies look yellow. Um, we say 60% of of full-term infants have some degree of neonatal jaundice, but oftentimes this this doesn't rise to a level of concern. So the etiology or cause of neonatal jaundice is extremely high levels of bilirubin, oh. this orange molecule in circulation. It's called hyperbilirubinemia. And this can be, you know, it's like a continuous distribution of bilirubin. So, you know, a little excess is not that big a deal, but a lot is actually something to really worry about. And you need to seek treatment; otherwise, the baby could experience uh, neurological defects. Um, but fortunately, the treatments are readily available. Um, bilirubin blood tests are easy if you have access to medical care, and the treatment is basically putting the baby in the sun or putting them under blue lights, Right. and that breaks down the orange bilirubin molecule. So, yeah, that's that's what causes bilirubin and, and jaundice in, in babies. Um, is, is jaundice, I mean, is jaundice dangerous? It can be if it's untreated. Um, it can lead to permanent neurological defects. Oh, wow. You know, the disorder is called conicterus. And it, if untreated, it can cause, you know, basically lifelong um, disability. But fortunately, in, when we have access to medical care, it's very easy to diagnose and treat. It's right. a bigger problem if you don't have access to medical care.
1: Yeah, I think most, most maternity hospitals have those um, machines, those blue light machines. I think I've seen them um, in, the, in the labor ward. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, the, the, the bilirubin itself. Uh, this is to do with the
3: degradation of red blood cells. Talk to me about that. Exactly. So red blood cells are the most um, abundant cell type in our body. We have a whole bunch of them. And they, they live for about six months And then as they die, we have to recycle the heme. And heme is the molecule that red blood cells use to carry oxygen around the body. So we have to recycle this heme. And the body has a pretty complicated process to do it. It breaks the heme down into this green molecule called biliverdin. And then biliverdin is broken down into this orange molecule called bilirubin, the same thing that makes babies turn orange. And the bilirubin is excreted into our guts. But once in our guts, gut microbes can actually also further metabolize the bilirubin into yellow Eurovillin and a brown Stericovillin. Right. And, and
1: so uh, presumably then over six months, we would have completely replaced all of our red blood cells in the body. Correct. And, and does it happen ever that um, these red
3: blood cells can't degrade or have problems degrading? And what happens in that case? Yeah, if, if you can't break down heme, it's a pretty serious disorder. There's a, there's a number of disorders associated with um this dysregulated heme breakdown and and excretion so yeah it's pretty important that you do break down heme efficiently
1: um so going back to um what we've learned from this so we now know why urine is yellow that's not something
3: we knew before is that right you know we had a good idea what molecule was the cause but we didn't know how that molecule was being produced right we knew that gut microbes were responsible but we didn't know the enzyme We didn't know the species that were responsible or the specific strains. So, you know, now we have basically the full pathway. We know exactly how red heme turns into green biliverdin, turns into orange bilirubin, turns into yellow urobilin.
1: Tell me a little bit about how you discovered this, because it was sort of a fortunate, it wasn't something you were particularly looking for.
3: Exactly. So um, we were trying to study neonatal jaundice. And so, you know, the, the color of urine was kind of an interesting side effect of studying jaundice. Um, the specific way we found it is we identified bacteria that were able to reduce bilirubin and those that weren't. And we compared their genomes and looked for genes that were present in the bilirubin-reducing microbes and absent in the non-reducing microbes. And that led us to the candidate bilirubin reductase that we identified.
1: And did you, I mean, did you have to get donor urine for this research? Because we, we did a feature not too long ago and learned that uh, uh, I think it's a liter of urine is, is worth 250 pounds. Did you know that? Le- a liter of, no clean, a that.
3: liter of clean urine in the UK is 250 pounds. Wow, I had, I had no idea. Fortunately, we didn't have to use any urine. Um, basically, we just can buy the bilirubin And we can culture gut microbes, so probably from stool originally, but we didn't have to culture them from stool ourselves. So we just have basically bilirubin and microbes. We didn't have to actually collect a lot of urine ourselves. Which is
1: nice, which is is always nice in the job, I would imagine.
3: Especially if it costs 250 pounds per liter. Oh, my goodness.
1: Okay, so on the face of it, um, someone might say, You know, who cares that that we know how our urine gets yellow, but I wouldn't be so rude to ask that question. But um, let me rephrase it a little bit. How is this useful to us?
3: Yeah, so I mean, we really think that this this, um, degradation of bilirubin to urobilin by gut microbes might be very important to the cause of neonatal jaundice. We think that the absence of these bilirubin-reducing microbes might predispose infants to jaundice, we don't have, um, you know, the results for that yet. But we hope that this research serves as the foundation for an additional study to test that hypothesis, and that could lead to better ways to treat and prevent neonatal jaundice.
1: Well, why do, do we have any reason why we would have a condition at birth that is potentially so dangerous that is so common? Like, why, why do we have sixty
3: percent of of, of full term babies coming out jaundiced? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, it's a problem because Baby's livers are still kind of like developing and they're, they're immature. So it's, it's a problem. I think that probably during the course of evolution, this wasn't such a big problem because mm. if you just put the baby in the sun, um, it basically resolves. Yes. So I would assume that like our ancestors probably were exposed to more sun than we are today. So it probably wasn't as big a problem for them. So it's kind of maybe, you know, a problem of, of modern living. Uh, and uh, and living in Ireland,
1: I would imagine this as well. yes, exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, okay. and just finally, th- this um uh, research has gotten a lot of um international press. Is that a big deal for a researcher, or is it you know, because uh, sometimes the story really takes off. It seems like this story has been absolutely everywhere. Um, is that a big deal for you? Does that have any, is there any benefits to that other than annoying people like me calling you up and asking you to talk about it?
3: I'm absolutely elated that so many people are interested in it. I mean, you know, our research is really a basic research and I'm so happy that people can engage and, you know, see that, you know, there's this explanation for the daily phenomenon that they see related to their gut microbes and how that relates to my own research. So I, I'm just thrilled. It's no problem for me. I, I love doing these interviews and I I love getting people engaged and having them learn more about gut microbes. Bradley, thanks very much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Cheers, take care. If
1: by any chance you are concerned about the colour of your urine, you can uh, find a Pantone chart uh, which will tell you what to look out for and what's healthy uh, on the internet. Just look up, um, I think, pee urine colour chart or pee colour chart, something like that. Uh, that's it from us on this week's programme. If you've ever had blue or green pee, by the way, because it's something you ate as a medication, please do let me know. Um, I'd love to know, like, does does it really happen? Because every once in a while you, go, you come across these things on the internet, you think... theoretically it could happen, but has anyone ever had like bright blue, bright green pea? This is how we're going to start off 2024, by the way. It's only going to go downhill from here. You can email us, science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science, which is what nobody did last week, which is why we have no comments from the podcast. Uh, So please do get in touch so I'll have something to say at the end of next week's podcast. Um, But for now, that's it from us. Thanks to uh, a welcome return to our producer, Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, uh, Rory Galvin, and Hugo de Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof
0: with Jonathan McRae, proudly supported by
1: Science Foundation Ireland, Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.